0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClendon, and I have to say, Wade, I'm
1: pretty excited about this episode because at long last it means that the chess game that I've been playing with you in my mind is now going to be actually literalized in what
0: we're reviewing in the episode. Wow, Kevin, I've actually been playing a chess game with you in my mind, anticipating what you would move. Ah, that, that's pretty interesting to hear. Are you winning or losing in your head? Well, you know, you opened with the Sicilian defense, uh, but I was able to counteract that with the Queen's Gambit, and uh, you're almost to checkmate. <laughs> I, I hope you know just how much gobbledygook that was I <laughs> <you> just said. <laughs> Listeners, today we're taking a look at the new Netflix limited series drama by Scott Frank, The Queen's Gambit.
1: We also have a little bit of a memorial going in this episode for Sir Sean Connery, who recently passed away. We're going to be doing a retro review of one of his better known lead roles with John Houston's 1975,
0: The Man Who Would Be King. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 270 of Seeing and Believing tell the readers of life how it feels,
1: and to be a girl among all those men.
0: I don't mind it. Chess isn't always competitive.
1: Chess can also be beautiful. You're an orphan, Beth. I'm fine being alone. I feel safe in an entire world of just 64 squares.
0: Creativity and psychosis often go hand in hand. Or for that matter. Yes, listeners, we are here with episode 270. And Kevin, we're going to be talking about the late Sir Sean Connery a bit later by examining his film, The Man Who Would Be King. I gotta say, I'm a little disappointed because there's no Alcatraz or Nicolas Cage in this movie. Yeah. No Harrison
1: Ford either. No no, you know, <laughs> Nazi punching or anything like that. It's there's only so much you can cover with a, a single review of the of the man's career.
0: Yeah, right. So you got 007 and Mystery No, not Mystery Men. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I don't know why I said <laughs> Mystery Men.
1: <laughs> I feel like Sean Connery would probably <laughs> rather have
0: mystery men in his filmography than (laughs) league of extraordinary gentlemen Uh, it's been a long time since i've seen either of those films so i don't think i can comment i don't remember them but maybe that's saying all there is to say about those movies if i can't remember them this week's episode listeners however begins with a look at the queen's gambit here's the project's official synopsis Based on the novel by Walter Tevis, the Netflix limited series drama The Queen's Gambit is a coming-of-age story that explores the true cost of genius. Abandoned and entrusted to a Kentucky orphanage in the late 1950s, a young Beth Harmon, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, discovers an astonishing talent for chess while developing an addiction to tranquilizers provided by the state as a sedative for the children. Haunted by her personal demons and fueled by a cocktail of narcotics and obsession, Beth transforms into an impressively skilled and glamorous outcast while determined to conquer the traditional boundaries established in the male-dominated world of competitive chess. The series is directed and written by two-time Academy Award nominee Scott Frank. Kevin, The Queen's Gambit released late last month on Netflix and has slowly been gaining in popularity this week. It's currently Netflix's most popular stream, and the limited series shows no signs of slipping from the top ten anytime soon. Kevin, as we go ahead and get started here, I want to ask you first, what is your relationship like with the game of chess? Do you bring any experience to the quote-unquote board? And how does your familiarity with the game influence the way you viewed or watched The Queen's Gambit?
1: Yeah, well, I'm going to have to to be upfront and and say that I am a bit of a chess nerd. I was in chess club. I had the the big eyeglasses, geekiness, the whole nine yards. So I wasn't all that good. I didn't have a whole lot of skill to back it up, but I was pretty into it for uh, a lot of my childhood, if not most of my childhood. And uh, you and I were talking about this before the episode got started, but I've actually gotten back into chess in, in a little bit of a, a big way in like just over the past year, maybe it's like quarantine boredom, but I've kind of gotten back into studying openings and, and watching chess videos and whatnot. So I was really looking forward to checking out this series because I, I'm i a sucker for chess movies and chess uh, television shows to begin with just because of my background with the game. But also it's, it's always interesting to see how... A filmmaker tackles the challenge of making chess cinematic because it is perhaps one of the least cinematic pursuits you could try to make a movie about it's two people they're sitting down the entire time there's complete silence they uh you know only make one move every few minutes if even that fast and the game is so complex that You can't really tell just from glancing at the board what the state of the game is in the same way that you could by looking at a scoreboard in a sports movie or kind of having a a sports announcer make play-by-play calls in the the same way like during a basketball game or something. So it's kind of interesting to see a filmmaker tackle those challenges. And as far as The Queen's Gambit goes, I, I think it does an okay job. There are some... Things that I kind of had to make my peace with as a chess nerd while watching it—the fact that the you know these players are are literally you know making a move every every few seconds, which is sort of like making a movie about professional soccer where they're sc- scoring a goal every couple of minutes—you know it's just not really the way the game is played at the highest levels—and so that was a little bit jarring. So I kind of had to try to restrain my inner pedant. And, and try to really engage with the story of Beth Harmon. And I think that, on balance, the story that Scott Frank is uh, telling uh, based on the uh, source material that he's adapting from is, is pretty engaging. I don't think it's perfect, and we can get into a little bit why. Uh, it, it might be an adaptational challenge more, more so than necessarily a... Uh, a a huge structural flaw but on mounts it's nice to see uh chess kind of getting a little bit more of the limelight and especially with uh, a female lead because that's even more rare in in the world of competitive chess
0: okay yeah so you have uh, much more experience with chess than than i do of course i know how to play and i've played since i was young just off and on i'm not a huge fan of playing chess but i have helped teach my 7 year old to play and sometimes i play him and he's uh, he's doing really well i, I kind of want him to keep keep playing chess because i think he has a knack for it so i don't i don't know much about it the game itself but i ran across this review and it kind of reflects how i feel it's it's this user on letterbox kevin and his name is jack i don't know his last name But it says, uh, Anya Taylor Joy moves Bishop to K4. Me, having never played chess in my life, OMG, what a play. She's humiliated him. And (laughs) I think it's it's perfect, right? They're, They're moving all around, and yet Scott Frank manages to help us. Understand, if you will, what's kind of going on, even though we don't quite understand what's going on. We see the characters, we see the looks that they're giving each other, what they're doing on the board, and we realize, okay, this person's up, this person's down, this person's not doing well. And looking at the board, I can't really tell that, but I can tell that. So I think Scott Frank does a fantastic job of kind of staging those scenes. And because I don't have some of the background that you do, uh, I don't have any of those little those little frustrations uh, with, with this story. I will I will put everything out on the table though. This is a limited series, so it is, it's not a film, so it's not gonna go in my top ten films of the year, but this is probably one of my more favorite things that I've seen in 2020. It's a very bingeable, oh. very bingeable series, seven episodes long, and I was just I was just hooked. And there are a lot of reasons why I think I was hooked. But uh, I echo you. It's not perfect, but I I didn't really care. At, at the end of it, I, I really enjoyed it. And it's one of those few television shows that I'd love to go back and watch again, just because I, I think it is that well done.
1: Well, uh, let, we can start uh, right off the bat with one of the reasons why this show is so good at hooking people. We And I think reason number one has to be uh, the lead. Anya Taylor-Joy, oh, yeah. I think, is... She's a fascinating actress to watch. I always love seeing her in things. And I think she's in a lot of ways an ideal person to fill the role of Beth Harmon in the series because she's got she she's she's just got this this face that is fascinating to look at if if we were back in the silent era she has a face that's that's Hmm. made for silent cinema just because there, you know her eyes are so enormous and uh the shape of her face is so distinctive that you feel like you can just kind of look at her thinking about something and feel like Uh, the way that she's using her face and the way that she's kind of making small changes in expression, you kind of know what's going on uh, inside her head without her having to use dialogue to, to tell us about it. And I, I think that in a, in a series that's about that, that's so about such a cerebral pursuit as chess, somebody like, uh, Taylor Joy is just an ideal performer because she's she is so good at that kind of subtle use of physicality to really communicate an intensity and intellect that uh, you know perhaps a a more uh, verbal actress or or a less talented actress maybe wouldn't be as adept at doing. So I think she's just very very interesting to watch during the chess scenes. But even when she's away from the board, I think there's this way that Taylor joy uses her voice. It's kind of like, she almost speaks a lot of times in a, in a, just a low, almost a monotone. Um, and that kind of gives us an insight into this character that she's really, to to use the cliche from reality television. She's not here to make friends. She's here (laughs) to, uh, pursue her desire for excellence in the game that she loves and i think that that is communicated so well through taylor joyce's physicality her voice and the way that uh, scott frank kind of chooses to frame her in in her scenes
0: yeah no her eyes do so much and i talked about that with emma she's shaping up to be i think one of the best performers of the year this is i think this is her her year She's the only reason why I want to, why I one day might rewatch The Witch, uh, because she really is good <laughs> in, in that film. She's fantastic here. And you're, you're talking about uh, this, this quality to communicate internal ideas without saying too much. And that helps out uh, just so much. With an internal character like Beth here, who is not verbal, and yet we can still see Taylor Joy process emotions in these ideas. And there's a lot to be said about her character and her journey. I heard someone call this film kind of a rock star story. And I think that kind of makes sense. There's a lot of drug and alcohol abuse. There's someone who's really fighting to get to the top. It's a little bit different here. It's the chess world. But not in the 1950s and 60s, chess was kind of like rock and roll. It, it was a big deal. She's trying to conquer herself. She's trying to conquer her self-destruction. And then I also appreciate how this film examines... Greatness, and a lot of movies just can't really get this down, but we see uh, Taylor Joyce character and her innate natural ability, and that's that's what makes her pretty good, but then we also see the importance of not just natural talent, but hard work and a strong support system that is how one achieves greatness. And normally in movies it's just natural ability and some luck. Here it's kind of all of the above. And there there does come a point when she, when she loses, her first loss. I don't want to give too much away. But it hurts. She's devastated. At the same time, there's something about seeing a prodigy lose. It's not supposed to happen. And yet somehow in the end those losses have meaning too and so just the way that this television explores how one conquers whatever they set their mind out to how do they do that well there's a lot of different factors and it's not just natural ability
1: yeah the that observation about this being a kind of a rock star story is uh, it is an apt one. It's an apt comparison, just because you do have sort of the the natural talent who you know has this meteoric rise, and then has these these demons that come back to to haunt her. And in uh, Harmon's case, it's uh, you know she was, she was orphaned at a, at a young age. She struggles with substance abuse, uh, and and those kind of dog her throughout the film or throughout the series. Uh, what's interesting about this series is that it doesn't really fall into many of the same cliches that kind of that rock star story does. So we think about something like Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> or Rocket Man or something where it's just sort of like it's like ticking off the boxes and you've seen it all before. Uh, this series has a lot of the same elements, but they're not really the, they they don't necessarily proceed according to the way. You might expect, which is gratifying to see because it, it would be so easy for uh, Scott Frank to kind of lean on the Hollywood cliches instead of telling something a little bit more complex and and unusual. I appreciate that about it. I I mean, having said that, I I did struggle a little bit with the some of the choices that were made with those interpersonal relationships that you pointed out, because me you could argue that. The overall thematic thrust of this series isn't so much about chess or talent as it is about community, about family, about the support structures that need to come around a person in order for him or her to succeed. And that's sort of where Beth's journey kind of seems to revolve around is is the, the family that she lost when she was really young and the various people with whom she tries to find some sort of community or family as she rises to the top. I don't think that the series is entirely successful at teasing out that theme to its fullest extent. It feels like there's, a lot of these relationships to me felt a little bit underwritten. Like there was maybe something in the source material that flushed them out more fully, but just got left on the cutting room floor for time's sake. And so that left me maybe not connecting with this series as, as, as fully as, as you seem to have done.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of characters who just needed to be developed a little bit more. Uh, for example, there's a character, his last name is Towns, and he's played by Jacob Fortune Lloyd. And he kind of hovers around the background of, of Beth's thoughts, and yet... We'd need a little bit more from him. There are also a couple of choices with some of the relationships that I'm I'm not sure work entirely well. But I'll say this about the television show is that these relationships, none of them are perfect. And almost none of them move in the direction where I think they're going to move. And and part of that is with this new adopted uh, mother and how that turns out. Uh, the town's relationship, uh, a relationship with a, with a chess player named Benny. They're all kind of there and they have the opportunity to move into the cliche or predictable and it just, it doesn't really, really happen. And that can be also said about this orphanage where, where Beth spends her childhood. I came in thinking that this was going to be your typical uh Christian orphanage, orphanage like a, a Catholic orphanage where the children are treated just harshly, they're they're abused and there are things that go on there that are not good, obviously. We say that upfront. But it's not the type of place we're normally used to in these types of films and it just it just seems like the television show understands a lot of these types of stories and moves when we think it's going to stay still. And so I appreciate that about the show. Now, like I mentioned, not all these relationships work out the way that they probably should or are handled very well, but I found, I found meaning in a, in a lot of them. And, and that's more than can be said about, uh, a lot of television shows and movies that tackle similar subject matter.
1: I'm I'm glad you brought up the orphanage because while we were, uh, my wife and I were watching this series together, uh, I, I turned to her after I think the the first or second episode and just mentioned how much of a relief it was that the the adults at this orphanage weren't like the cartoonishly or the out not cartoonishly the outlandishly evil sort of person where she, you know she gets you know sexually abused or you know like somebody's just this harsh disciplinarian or some she gets hazed relentlessly by the other children it was such a relief to see a story about a young girl at an orphanage that didn't feel the need to make her suffer in in really horrible ways just for the sake of kind of goosing the drama a little bit and i think that that might be why the early episodes of the series are my favorite is because it's it zigs where you expect it to to zag and the relationships that are uh flushed out during this time that we spend at the orphanage are probably the series best realized there's a childhood relationship with a with a black girl named jolene who turns up in beth's life later that just feels very clear-eyed about uh the racial dynamic in their relationship while also um just portraying a a friendship that feels very natural like it's not cloying but it's also it, it doesn't feel like it's very again very Hollywoody. The also the relationship between young Beth Harmon and the custodian who teaches her to play chess in the first place, Mr. Scheibel, I think, is just such a touching relationship. And again, it's not done by having this big, you know, like you're my surrogate daughter moment, but it's just very small little character touches that uh, develop both of their characters, but develop them along lines that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Now, I don't think later on in the series that same winning streak continues. I think as the series progresses, it, it it's not so much that it's a problem with Taylor Joy's performance. I just think the writing maybe lets her down a little bit, where she's kind of got that that interesting face that that is subtle. So you so she doesn't just wear everything on her sleeve, but as you go on and the relationships become a little bit vaguer. It becomes a little bit difficult to really know. Okay, well, who is Beth Harmon and, and what does she want? She wants to be the best at chess, but you know, why does why does she want that? What motivates her? What do these other people who come around her mean to her? Except as uh, helpers on her quest in chess, it just it doesn't feel like that's really defined well enough for me to fully connect with it, which I would say is probably a problem.
0: Well, what's interesting for me is that after the first couple episodes, I was like, okay, I re- I really like the show, but I'm looking for a little more character development. What is that motivation? And I felt the opposite at the end. And I think the vagueness and the complicated nature of some of those relationships helped me to kind of understand what best character was searching for, in particular, her desire to be the best for some reason. And it all kind of ties back to her experiences growing up and the people around her become, pun intended, pawns in order for her to move forward. But she's going to have to progress if she wants to progress in life. She, she can't do it on her own. And I think there's a reason why it's called The Queen's Gambit because the Queen is the most powerful uh, piece on the chessboard. And yet, you still need the other pieces to make it work. I do want to say something about the production design here which I think is amazing. The costumes are incredible and best character makes this transition where she is uh, not able to dress very nicely in the orphanage and she becomes um, she becomes very as the official synopsis says very glamorous and I think all that's done super well you can tell when this takes place by the look of of the movie and I appreciate that there's also a number of scenes where uh, uh, there there are uh, split screens and we get different scenes happening at once which I think once again reflects the error and some of the things that happened in film and the way films were kind of put together sequences in the 1960s at the same time it also reflects uh, a chessboard and the different pieces that are kind of moving around so all of that I think was done just incredibly well and just Further adds to and and combines with the story to to produce something I think is is really good and like I said one of the, one of my more favorite things that I've that I've watched this year.
1: Well, you're definitely right that the production design is just fantastic in this series. Not you know the costuming has has gotten a lot of praise and rightly so, but I think also just the the sets I I think was something that I really appreciated the um the house when. Uh, Beth gets adopted by uh, a a couple and she moves with them to their home in suburbia. The house just feels, it feels period appropriate, but it also feels like it tells this entire story about, you know, who this, uh, the mother Alma, who she is and why she made the decorating choices that she did. Uh, Why, you know, it's just a, a, a space that's so rich in meaning. And that's kind of, carried through in a lot of these spaces where you kind of every place that Beth goes to play chess kind of has its own personality. And I think that that really goes a long way toward making the world feel lived in. Even if uh, I would have liked the characters to feel more lived in than they were
0: listeners. That is our review of the queen's gambit. As we mentioned earlier, it's currently streaming on Netflix. We'd love to get your thoughts. This is a popular show. I mentioned that in the introduction. A lot of people are checking it out or have already checked it out. If you have, we want you to send us a note about this limited television show. Tweet us at SeeBelievePod at pod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about the man who would be king here in just a bit. Listeners, that song is Warm Days by Vlad Glushenko. And I want to take an opportunity just to say thanks to everyone who supports us via our Patreon campaign. You keep the show going. If you'd like to support us, just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash sing underscore believing underscore podcast. You can also get some great perks through our different donation levels. One of our favorites. Is the what can you buy for five dollar level? And Kevin, I was wondering, what can you buy for five bucks? Five
1: bucks would get you a personal space fence. So if you kind of want to keep keep people out of your face a little bit, especially in this day and age, uh, personal space fence is like just a, a cage that you just slip on over your body, like a like a dress, and it ensures that you know people don't get too close to you. You've kind of got them held at arm's length. With this. Uh, Wiry contraption, so huh. good value for five bucks. No,
0: that's really good. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, but uh, people will put it on their walls. They'll upload it on their on their YouTube channels, uh, on their on their Reddit feeds. Um, dance like no one's watching. Sing like no one's listening. Have you ever heard that before? It's kind of like a I, popular I've, deal. i
1: I've, I've heard uh, all. Yeah, I've definitely heard that. <laughs> I. Do not take that advice, though.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking that for many of us, if we dance like no one's watching and sing like no one's listening, people aren't going to want to be around us anyway. So that's another <laughs> way to promote social distancing a little bit cheaper than $5.
1: Yeah, well, I, and that's why I don't follow that that advice is because if I didn't if I truly danced and sang like there was nobody around me, then I would probably get my wish for nobody to be around <laughs> me very quickly. <laughs> so maybe it's best
0: to have some inhibitions in those areas. Well, listeners, if you want to create some space between you and other people, you can buy. That contraption thingy for $5, you could sing, you could dance like no one's around you, or you could put your $5 to, I think, better use by becoming a Patreon supporter of Seeing and Believing. Like I mentioned a second ago, just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast.
1: Yeah, and we're always really excited when you, uh, whether or not you throw some hard-earned money our way, we always love hearing from our listeners. And we actually got a a tweet from Seth T. Honey over on the Twitters recently. Uh, Seth is a is a sometime listener. He's also a member of the Christ Pop Culture members forum, and he did. He does art. Uh, he, his art can be found oh, yeah. on the site as well. Uh, and he was catching up with our Touch of Evil episode, Wade, and he says, "...listening to your Touch of Evil thing, and I'm like super interested to see the theatrical cut. I saw the director's revision when it hit theaters in 1998, and several times since on DVD, but have never seen the studio cut, and he goes on to say that he is curious about the differences." He continues, it's easily among my favorite noir films. I was super into noir in the late 90s, and I even have a Touch of Evil illustration I'm planning based on that opening shot with the car. So I'm really looking forward, actually, to seeing that art piece. Uh, Seth, for any listeners who aren't aware, Seth is an artist who's been embarking on a series of illustrations uh, that essentially function as... Uh, posters or book covers for famous works of literature and film. So I would probably throw a plug his way if I could. Uh, if you Google Seth Hani, that last name is spelled H-A-H-N-E, you can turn up some of his work and even uh, give to give him some financial support and get one of those prints for your very own. So definitely recommend checking that out as well.
0: Yeah, it almost makes me want to write certain articles for the Christ and Pop Culture magazine <laughs> just so he'll illustrate the subject and I can print it out and have oh, a yeah. poster, right? So, just maybe pick one of my favorite movies, write about it, he creates it, and then I just download it and print it and and boom because he's – he really is that good. So listeners, make sure to check out his work. He's, he's got great stuff. And as always, you can shoot us a line. We mentioned this a second ago. We'll say it again at belief Pod, at CBeliefPod. We'd love to get your thoughts. Or email us seeing and believing at gmail.com.
1: There is no place on earth too forbidding. There is no adventure too dangerous to dare. There is no dream of wealth and glory too impossible. For the man who would be king, Connery and Kane, rogue and renegade, reckless and fearless soldiers of fortune on the richest adventure of their life. Across a thousand miles of danger, come with Sean Connery and Michael Kane as they try to capture a whole country, a scheme for rascals to become royalty in the long lost land of Alexander the Great. Rudyard Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King.
0: They share the treasure, they share the danger, they share
1: the adventure, Sean Connery, Michael Caine and Christopher Plummer in John Huston's The Man Who Would Be King. We're back with the second half of our show, and out of respect for the late Sean Connery, we are not going to be doing our Sean Connery impressions here to kick (laughs) things off, which I'm sure
0: uh, is a source of great relief for everybody who's listened this far. (laughs) I, I feel like whenever I do a Sean Connery impression, I always have to do it while he's eating food. That's the only way it can sound like him is if I act like I'm Sean Connery eating something. I'm not going to do it here, like you said out of respect. It's not great, but it it gives me a little tickle, so I it makes me laugh.
1: Yeah, you know, you we all have our 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 talents. Yours happens to be doing impression of Sean Connery getting asked a question while he's eating dinner. Yes. And <laughs> Part of having those gifts is knowing the appropriate time to exercise them. So thank you for your restraint, Wade. We definitely <laughs> did want to do uh, something on the show to kind of memorialize Connery and the fact that he was such an iconic screen presence for so long. And we settled on the idea of doing a retro review of a film where he lent his unique screen presence to a leading role. We already did a James bond focus episode way back in episode 37 of the show, so his role as The Secret Agent was out. We've settled instead on the 1975 film he did with John Huston and Michael Caine, The Man Who Would Be King. Kane and Connery star as Peachy Carnahan and Daniel Dravat, two conmen and ex-soldiers who harbor a dream of infiltrating a less-developed country— using their training to carry a native ruler to military victory, then bumping him off to install themselves as the sole rulers. They find what they think is an ideal country in Kafiristan, a fictional country where the local infighting and religious beliefs seem primed for two aspiring British colonialists to swoop in, grab all the power and wealth they can hold, and make a getaway. Of course, as in Houston's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Things don't go exactly according to plan. So Wade, this is a story that's adapted from a a Rudyard Kipling story. So it it maybe goes without saying that this is a film that evinces some views that have not really aged all that well in terms of just its view of non-European peoples, shall we say. But I am curious to know, even with that Keeping that in mind, what was your impression of the man who would be king? And what did you think Connery brought to the film in terms of that screen presence that we all know so well?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you said that. It kind of got it out of the way because I'm watching this film and it's like, ooh, like, yeah, that, that that didn't age very well at all. So it's good to, to talk about that first. And, and I'll say something brief about Sean Connery. He's he's never been someone who has been like oh that's, he's he's one of my favorite actors, but he just seems to be a cinematic staple. And I was going back and looking at his career, and it's really crazy because his last on-screen film role is the two, we we talked about the 2003 The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and then before that. Uh, finding Forrester in 2000 the other stuff has been voice work and it it feels like he's done more than that just because he's Sean Connery I, I love him as, as Indiana Jones' father and uh, it's really great to catch up with this film because I had not seen it before and I gotta say I'm not really a huge fan of this movie uh, it, it, it's okay I really do like Connery, and I think he is. And I'm just saying this because we're talking about him. I think he is the best part of this movie. Michael Caine's good, too. He tends to overact a bit. But Sean Connery is, is very funny, and he makes the transition from uh, this boisterous, lighthearted, prideful individual uh, to uh, an angry, selfish Man who almost sees himself as as a god. So I think he's the best part of this film, and I, I think some of the best scenes are with him. And uh, he's got some good dialogue with with Michael Caine here that that uh, I'm glad he was able to check out.
1: Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll echo uh, your sentiment in that. Just the the issues with kind of this this colonialist viewpoint and the yeah you know, the, the frankly the. The racism that's that's evident kind of does tend to leave a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth, which is a shame because there is so much about Houston's filmmaking and the performances that I actually think are quite strong. And so it's it's just a shame that it's, it's otherwise marred. And part of that you can kind of put down to the attempts that these guys aren't good guys, right? The attempts to portray them not as their, the attitudes that they hold, not as something to aspire to or to emulate, but as evidence of the fact that they're just utterly venal and corrupt. And they, the dehumanization of the people on screen kind of echoes their perspective. I don't think that entirely works simply because the, the people on screen are so othered that they're They're almost not human, which I think is a problem that can be laid squarely at the feet of of the director. I think it's just, it's something that he didn't really, either didn't care to solve or wasn't able to solve. And so it's an unfortunate black mark on the film for sure. But having said that, I do think that Connery especially leans into his character's uh, corrupt Corruption and roguishness to an extent that he becomes a very interesting person to watch on screen because he is, he does kind of have that magnetism. When I think of Sean Connor I kind of think of, of his mouth. He's got kind of these, these, these large white teeth and this, this way of. Smiling, where it's it's almost wolfish. Like you, you don't know whether he's about to grimace or about to snarl or about to burst into laughter. He's just kind kind of got this face that is hard to read or anticipate what his expression is going to be until he's actually you know doing it or actually taking action. And I think for this story, that's a really interesting sort of presence to have on screen because it it does bring home better than another active actor might have the, the idea that this, the, these two men are, are not good men and they kind of see themselves as roguish adventurers when the reality is a lot more disturbing. And I think the mm. kind of the almost fantasy like quality of the story aids that, but Connery's performance is partly what brings it home.
0: Yeah, and Connery has a swagger that can't be taught, and it's easy to overdo that. Of course, we all know about James Bond, how he plays 007, uh, but, but there is something there. It's more than just his, his looks. It's his presence. It's his confidence, and he uses that here, uh, almost overindulges that here, to comedic effect. And I think the film becomes its most insightful when it allows these characters to skew themselves and their heritage. I love how at one point they talk about how India is too small for them because <laughs> they, they, they want to be, you know, they want to be kings. And then uh, they talk about how they, Tumbled down from the sky They aren't gods But they are quote unquote The next best thing <laughs> I love that line I mean it's it's great And it really does Point a finger At this colonialism That existed in that time period And before And it wasn't uncommon For most of the people And we kind of look down on it now Rightly so But a lot of Englishmen during the 30s, 40s, before that, they thought that they had somehow arrived. And that's a way that they used, that even the government used to justify colonialism because, well, we know what we're doing. And if we were to move out of these regions, then it would fall into anarchy, Uh, not understanding the role that they played there. So letting these characters kind of have fun with that is, is when the film kind of, it, it gets to the point where it says, well, maybe, you know, maybe these other cultures uh, have something that we don't have. Uh, now, visually, from the opening montage to dip, a number of different sections throughout this film, uh, Houston, John Houston does not reinforce that idea, but the film kind of has those glances. And part of that is because of, of Connery and just his way of playing it straight uh, but then as i mentioned he makes this this transition and he goes along with being a god and then he begins to dispense justice and believe oh i i am superior i know the way i can give these people's law uh, these people laws rules and make their life better and that sort of parable, a metaphor is saying something and he just kind of, he kind of nails it. And then he gets to the part where he's just like, no, give me what, give me what I want. I don't care about what you believe in your culture. Give me what I want. And that becomes uh, frightening. I, I was listening to a clip of Connery talking about this film, and uh, apparently he got very close to Michael Kane during this film. And he said that John Huston told him and Kane that these characters were really just one person. And as long as they were together, they could do anything. And so he saw this film as uh, a comment on, on friendship. When two people get together, there's nothing they can't do, and we see the negative side of that as well. Uh, But then when they begin to separate, when those performances begin to contrast with each other, uh, that's when things start to fall apart. And I thought that was a really great observation, and I think that's one of the sections of the film that Houston really does hit.
1: It also makes the ending of this film that much more intriguing. Uh, And you know if anybody there hasn't hasn't had a chance to see it yet I, I don't I'm not going to give go into too many details about but the the way that this story is framed is we see Michael Caine show up earlier early in the film he's by himself and he's just decrepit he looks like he's been to hell and back twice and he's he looks awful and he's telling his story to the film version of Rudyard Kipling played by Christopher Plummer and so it, that's sort of the book-ending story device. And we return to uh, Kipling's office at the end of the film to kind of wrap things up and find out how uh, Kane's Peachy made his way back from Kafiristan. And the the way that that's, that's framed, it, it's even more sobering because if we do kind of think of these two men as two halves of the same person or as a single person um, the the rupture that's suggested by that final scene really it becomes that much more disturbing about just the warping effect of megalomania and blasphemy, frankly, it, that you kind of begin to wonder how much of the narrative that we've seen previously, how much of it is reliable? How much of it is being told by a person who has a firm grip on reality? Uh, Or has Peachy's grip on reality begun to slip just as much as Connery's Daniel, who is, by the end of the film, apparently begun to believe that he is some sort of demigod? That's a really fascinating line for the film to walk, and it also really draws out the spiritual underpinnings of the story in, in in, in an interesting way. I think The Treasure of the Sierra Madre has a lot in common with this film, and Treasure is a better film, but there are spiritual underpinnings to the initial discomfort that Connery's Daniel feels with impersonating a god, and then he becomes more and more comfortable with it over time, so that by the end, it feels like the the way that things kind of fall apart is not just an act of like you know, this is the logical endpoint of human greed and ambition. It's more like there's some divine justice happening here as well, which is is very fascinating to think about.
0: Yeah, and and there is so the ending. It, it I feel like the film really does kind of ramp up at the end, and there is a stunt done in place of Sean Connery's character near the end that is pretty incredible and just reading some background on how it was done is uh it it's just you don't see some of the, that work now with so much CGI it was it was pretty wild and then without going into the end one of the frustrations of the ending is, for me is michael Caine tells christopher plummer which is crazy that he's in this movie too and he tells him what happened to his character and how he got here. And he very quickly talks about what was done to him. And it's almost blink if you miss it or if the volume's not turned up high enough, you're like, wait, they, he, wait, they did that to him. And it really just kind of bundles together all of these uh, religious ideas that we're talking about here. You have characters who uh, one character claims to be God, the other is. I wouldn't say he's the son of 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 him, but he is uh, it's a more part like of his
1: that. A- apostle.
0: Apostle, yes. And the people do to them, uh, what people did to Jesus, and when that happens, you get the sense that their idea of being a god is one thing. And they're not really ready for this definition of God that stems or that that they would probably believe in their country. Uh, So I'm trying trying to be kind of coy about it because I don't want to give away the ending. But there's a lot kind of tied up there. I wish the film would have worked that in a little bit more. And I think there are things that are not shown visibly because – This is kind of a comedy, and it can't get too dark. But it definitely has a lot to say about taking on the mantle of being God, what that entailed, uh, at least from a Christian perspective, and how we can't measure up to that.
1: And here's where I think that Connery does such a wonderful job in his role because he does start off—there's a moment where they kind of make the decision— maybe to say, oh, they the, these people think that you're a god. Why don't we just sort of play along with that? And Connery's character at first is uncomfortable with it. He's like, that's a, that's, that's blasphemy. Like, we shouldn't do that. I'm a little bit uncomfortable with this. And Cain says, well, it's only blaspheming if you claim to be God Almighty, if you claim to be this other demigod, then, mm. you know, it's okay. And you can see Connery, once he's kind of internalized that, his performance in each scene after that, he kind of goes from being this raffish, you know, British mercenary uh, oh, by by steps he becomes more grandiose, he becomes a little bit more, he, he's got kind of the self-conscious magnanimity as he dispenses justice and then that turns into this darker, like it begins to curdle and you begin to see what happens when humans try to be God. Uh, there, there's almost a frightening scene where he's with the religious leaders and they tell him that he can't do something and he says am i not a god have i not stretched the shadow of my hand over this country mm. and connor's performance in that in that scene is frightening he's got this anger and the kind of the, this you know his, that those brows of his and you fear him in that moment you don't fear him because you're intimidated by him you fear him because you see you see what he's become and I, I think mm. that that performance is such a linchpin for the film as a whole that even with its other flaws, I really do think, find it a very interesting film to think about.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and there's another scene that I really appreciate too. The characters have not reached this place where they're headed towards. Uh, they're in the snow. They think they're going to die. And, and they kind of, for just a brief moment, put their guard down and one of them says, in, in your opinion, have our lives been well spent? And they have been caught up in these hijinks and they've been caught up in in this grand plan. And they stop and and they they say that and there's this there's this moment of seriousness, and then they cut back into cut kind of, the jokes and, and they they're laughing. And I, I think that just says so much about even what Kane does too, but but more so Connery and his ability to just add these subtle shifts into this story uh, that that make it that make it pop. Listeners, that is our review of The Man Who Would Be King from John Houston. We would love to get your thoughts on it. Make sure to shoot us a line. For now. We've reached the part of the show where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. Kevin, what would you like to recommend this week? Well, my recommendation for this
1: week is actually what I think still holds the crown for the best uh, store, chess story on visual media, and that is the 1993 film Searching for Bobby Fischer, written and directed by Stephen Zalian. And this is uh, uh, based on a true story. It's based on the memoir of Fred Waitskin and it's all about uh, how his son, Josh Waitskin kind of became a chess prodigy of his own, and the emotional journey that uh, the elder Waitskin had, kind of watching this this little boy you know, grow up on the chessboard in a sense. And that's just I, I like this film for a lot of reasons. I think the just the emotional journey that its character goes through where chess is a central part of his life, but he comes to realize that it's maybe it's it's not the most important thing about life. I, I think it's just a, a very touching and, and well told story. I also think that Zalian really lands on uh a way of depicting chess on screen that feels like actual chess. He uses montage a little bit more to elide over the, the stretches of time where it's just two people staring at a board thinking. Uh, he uses music and uh, uh, uses the camera, uh, bring it down to the board level to really give the sense of a child's perspective of the board and how it can become an entire world to that character. And I just think that it's still unequaled uh, by... Uh, other chess entertainments that have that, that I've seen anyway. And I think it's just a, an incredibly well-told story to boot. So definitely, if you've seen The Queen's Gambit and you're jonesing for more chess stories on screen, searching for Bobby Fischer is a wonderful next step.
0: Yeah, you know, that, that used to come on, believe it or not, the Disney Channel periodically. And I remember the first time I watched it, I just did not, I didn't get it. And I saw it a few more times and I was like, okay, yeah, this is, it's actually a pretty good, a pretty good film. So that's a great pick uh, this week. I, I'm just going to go with the easy one, Kevin, this week. It's a film that I mentioned earlier and it's the 1996 movie, The Rock. I love nineties action movies. I think this is a pretty good action movie. It's over the top, it's kind of silly. It's not believable, but it's anchored by some pretty good performances. Ed Harris, <laughs> he's this rogue uh, general who's threatening to attack San Francisco with nerve gas. He's on Alcatraz. And then uh, you have a Sean Connery who is an ex-con. He's got to lead this strike against uh, the individuals in Alcatraz. And then you have uh, Nicolas Cage who is a guy kind of thrust into this, and he doesn't really know what he's doing. Sean Connery here, he does what he did well in James Bond. He finds a way to make this sort of campiness work and work well. Uh, this seriousness just, just fits here. And so I like the film. I haven't seen it in a few years, but it's one of those that I'll, I'll pick up every little while and, and check out. And I think it's probably due for a rewatch. But yeah, This nineteen ninety six, The Rock.
1: Well, you and you know me, I'm I'm a Cage connoisseur, so I always appreciate me some Nicolas Cage when when I can find it. Although I don't know that his his full talents are made are put to their best use in The Rock, but it's a fun action movie and probably my favorite of of Michael Bay's stuff. So, and of course, it is. I mean, if you like Sean Connery, that is one of his best uh, '90s roles. So definitely
0: good for that. No, definitely. Good for that. Well, listeners, that is a wrap for this week's show. Thank you for listening to our episode. It's brought to you by ChristInPopculture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the Sacred On Screen. Make sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's on Spotify apple stitcher make sure to share this episode if you found it helpful maybe share it with a friend who's seen the queen's gambit or maybe is a sean connery fan we'd really appreciate it i'm Wade Bearden. my co-host is kevin mcclennathan and until next time this is seeing and believing you have been listening to seeing and believing an official
1: production of the christ and pop culture podcast network Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.